Hello and welcome to Postwave. This is Eric. I'm Trevor. And today we're going to be talking about time. Is time an illusion? How do we reconcile our experience of a single present moment being the only thing that's real with the fact that determinism seems to imply everything exists all at once? When you watch a movie, is the movie what's projected onto the screen or is it the real with each individual frame lasting for eternity? time is it can we ever know yes <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks for, thanks for joining us this has been the trevor and eric podcast trevor and eric talk about things podcast like comment subscribe thanks bye <laughs> Do you remember how your thinking about time has evolved as you've grown up? Because I find that really interesting to think about. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that I was considering the question in any deep regard when I was younger, uh, up until probably when I started listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson and Michio Kaku talking about all their cool stuff. Yeah. That's cool. I honestly I don't remember thinking about it a whole lot even though I was like I read Cosmos by Carl Sagan and like my family and I watched all the movies and stuff. And I but I still don't think I started thinking about time in a really philosophical way until at least college i don't know i don't remember thinking about it at all during high school or you know yeah absolutely (laughs) there's just kind of that general anxiety about like trying to get ahead and like not fall behind and like prepare for your future yeah there wasn't really time to think about time (laughs) in that in that mindset yeah and you just don't have any perspective because the only thing that's happened to you is kind of this one thing that's basically just living with your parents and seems pretty unchanging until it changes. Yeah. And that's, that's true. Even on a psychological, like interpersonal level, I, I remember, um, well, just sort of that I had this impression of my parents and my family as this like entity, this landscape of my existence that is, as you were saying, unchanging. It's just a facet of what it is to be alive is this particular energy. But uh, it took me maybe a semester going through uh, when I first got to college to even begin to address that uh, that particular energy pattern is maybe not 
uh, well, definitely not universal and maybe not even healthy for me mm -hmm. to be around constantly. That's interesting. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why did it take me that long? Yeah. I would say it's because it's what I had experienced my whole life and I had no experience of anything other than that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, actually, I think, I think one of the main places I thought about time first was when I started learning about spectralism in college. Mm -hmm. uh, and spectralism, for anyone who doesn't know, is this movement within contemporary classical music that's based a lot on uh, using alternate intonation systems and basing things on the harmonic series, but also... Um, playing with your perception of time over long uh, long time scales and processes that unfold very slowly. Um, mm. And there's also really long duration music by people like Morton Feldman that pieces that last five hours just for, you know, instrumental group of like three or four players. <laughs> mm -hmm. And minimalist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like that was the first place I started to really think about kind of the philosophical part of it just the, the fact that um that our perception of time is so mysterious and so mm. i mean it's, it's one of those things that's it's like on the surface in our everyday experience but to actually describe it is pretty difficult <laughs> to yeah. actually yeah describe what's happening yeah, it's one of those things where it's so basic that the the more basic it gets, the harder it is to address. Yeah. In the same way that like in math, the more basic a thing is, the harder it is to prove. Like how how do you prove that you can have numbers that equal numbers? Right. <laughs> yeah, you have to yeah, you have to have some things that that uh that are or like axioms, right? That you take as a given. Yeah, absolutely. One of the people who got me thinking about time most recently is this guy, Sean Carroll, who's this theoretical physicist at, at a Caltech. So Sean Carroll believes in this view called eternalism, which is basically that, that all time exists at once and that the idea that the present moment is privileged over the past or the future is just an illusion of mm. our human biology wow so that's and, kind of contrary to the Taoist perspective of only the present is real and that the past and future are illusory yeah that's interesting i was actually listening to something on Taoism earlier today don't they also believe in like cyclic things mm -hmm. certainly yeah um well, well I, I would say a lot of the cultures in the in the belief system if you can call it that perhaps it's more of a philosophy yeah i mean i think it goes back to like plato and aristotle people have been trying to figure out the nature of time forever um i think yeah i mean with religion it's kind of that if you imagine uh we'll talk about this the idea of a block universe that's um mm. that all exists at once um and it's like a succession of moments uh, in a religious sense, God could be considered to be outside of that, viewing it from some kind of like 
five-dimensional perspective. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was the coolest part that I, I feel like of that video mm. where he was talking about how you'd have to, in order to, to behave as if you were unstuck in time, you would actually have to, like the time travel, you'd actually have to be traveling in uh, some kind of fifth dimension that's neither yeah, in time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that makes me think. So if you have this block universe where everything in the present and past and future all exist at, and are as tangible. Yeah. So if, if you have this lattice work of three spatial dimensions and time and time is uh, as t tangible a dimension as the spatial dimensions that you can consider tra traversing in the same way that you traverse the spatial d dimensions. So, so you could consider that while we are taking one of these dimensions and progressing steadily in one direction, even as we explore in the other three dimensions, th that particular dimension of time could be traversed freely by a different entity whose cross-section of space-time is entirely at a different angle than ours. And for that entity, it would also have to have an experience of time, but that their dimension of time would not be the same dimension as our dimension of time, so that their, their dimension of time could perhaps be one of our spatial dimensions. What do you mean by at a different angle? Um, so, so if you take, for example, a graph, uh, let, let's, let's say a three-dimensional graph. You have X, Y, and Z. And let's say that we have some flatlanders, some two-dimensional beings who live in this three-dimensional oh, world, right. and their Z-axis is time, that they continually progress. Mm -hmm. And every single uh, experience they have is one step further out along that Z-axis. Mm -hmm. So that dimension becomes time. But you could also imagine there's a different group of flatlanders who cross-sect, and they actually have X as their time. They're continually progressing outward along X. Yeah, because it, so it's kind of like space and time would switch places somehow. Well, specifically, a single spatial dimension and time. Hmm. Is that a Mikio Kaku thing, or I think I think he talks about ideas in this vein, and a lot of my own ideas on this subject are highly derivative from. Uh, Michio Kaku, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and actually Alan Watts, I would say, yeah. are my primary influences. And they have a lot of incredible ideas. And if uh, I embrace some of their ideas, it's it's because they ring so true to me. So I don't necessarily know if some of these ideas that I'm sharing are entirely original, but uh, they are fully embraced i'll say yeah so the the guy who sean carroll kind of takes his cues from on this topic of time is uh his name is jme mctaggart and he was active around the turn of the century early 1900s 
So he comes from this whole tradition of analytic philosophy that tries to take a really rigorous look at the world through rules and logical systems and tries not to rely too much on, on intuition. So the way he approached this problem of time is that he can see two possibilities for how reality is, right? So in possibility A, which he called the A series of time, uh, there's the past, present, and future, just like we think about it, right? Those are three separate things. And mm. the present is the most real, and the past and the future are not real. We have memories from the past, but not the future, right? Those three things are different. And there's another possibility, which is <laughs> which is the B time series, which is only delineated by earlier events and later events. So there's no there's no rigid division between these three past, present, future categories. And he shows in this paper called The Unreality of Time, the A version of time is actually self-contradictory because events keep changing which category they're in. Could you explain that a little more? Yeah, let me let me find the quotation. Okay. It would, I suppose, be universally admitted that time involves change. A particular thing, indeed, may exist unchanged throughout any amount of time. But when we ask what we mean by saying that there were different moments of time or a certain duration of time through which the thing was the same, we find that we mean that it remained the same while other things were changing. A universe in which nothing whatever changed, including the thoughts of the conscious beings in it, would be a timeless universe. So the way I think about it, A series is like there's three clear delineations, right? That there's things that are clearly in the past, things that are clearly in the present, things that are clearly in the future. Hmm. And those categories are obviously always changing because we're moving through through time, right? Um, sure. Uh, but they're, they're rigid boundaries, right? Um, mm hmm and the b series is more like a gradient like it's a continuous flow and there's the only thing that connects the moments to each other is just that they're they're adjacent basically hmm. is this uh getting into the xeno dividing space an infinite number of times maybe so although i think uh i think we're still not sure whether whether time is indivisible what do you think um, I would guess that it's probably, it probably has some tiniest unit just because that would seem to fit with the rest of the universe. How so? Tell, tell me about your experience with time and, and your understanding of it on an intuitive level. Like what does it feel like to you? Yeah. So I've had experiences where I felt like the individual moments of time passing and I think actually, uh, so there, there was some uh, pharmacological assistance there. <laughs> um, but my, my theory is that it has something to do with your heartbeat and the way blood flows in your brain and that the, you're feeling this tiny little increase in blood flow in your brain every time your heart beats. And mm. that creates part of the sense that there is like a now 
or there's a perceptual now. Um, I mean, it's it's also it's also just directly tied to perception because it's hard to hard to imagine what perception would be like if it wasn't tied to a present moment. Mm. Yeah. So so you're saying that you've had a, an experience of time seeming as though it comes in discrete packets that say start in one present moment and uh you find yourself in another present moment mm-hmm. later on yeah and that you're postulating that it's the physical mechanism of your body that is creating that ticking as it were mm-hmm. and it's interesting that you brought up the heart, uh, which could definitely be a clock. In, in Sean Carroll's video, he talks about how Galileo was looking up at the pendulum of in the church and trying to time it to his own heartbeat as a clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, another clock, of course, to consider would be the nervous system, which does have its own rate that it pulses at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's anything like a a single unit of time, that it's nothing like the one that we perceive. Mm. It must be, if there is a smallest unit of time, it must be in the order of, you know, billionths of a second or something. Yeah, we're too clumsy <laughs> machines to be able yeah. to... Hmm. I, it is really interesting. I, I guess I've just started to pay more attention to this recently especially when I'm teaching and like something's not going quite right, how time just all of a sudden like slows down and it seems like forever. Like I had a a first lesson with a new student the other day who like uh, I had never met in person and it was my first lesson like that for the school. And Hmm. like five minutes in, like they're like, oh, I can't hear you anything from you anymore. But and I was I went back and looked at the chat because I was messaging them like, okay, like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll restart Zoom if it doesn't get fixed. It was literally just like a minute of not being able to <laughs> hear each other, but mm. it was like, oh my God, this is <laughs> literally forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way one time at the composer jury uh, at the end yeah. of the semester. All the c- composing teachers sit around and listen to our music. And I, being the fuckhead that I was, forgot my thumb drive that had my all my Mm -hmm. music on it that i was supposed to be playing for them and so i come in and go to the computer it's right there right there in front of them all go to my soundcloud type in my username type in my password and i'm like sweating like time is passing time is passing dan kellogg goes this this is it. This is the thing. Like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Couldn't have been more yeah. than 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Waiting for technology. Always do that. Jeez, how much time have we spent in our lives just waiting for technology to work? Long-ass time. Long-ass time. You don't, you don't want too much ass time, but, you know, a little ass time now and then. <laughs> so I, I, this is interesting because I, I'm someone who, uh, am chronically unsure about things. <laughs> and <laughs> recently, for some reason, 
I, I think I think this started like about a month ago. But I I suddenly had this really strong like visceral intuition that that all time does exist at once because uh or not not that not that all time uh exists at once, but that the implication of that would be if that were true, that consciousness is eternal. Because mm. if we imagine that our past self past selves always exist, right? Eternally, what does that mean for them to be conscious? And the only mm. Yeah. The only thing I can really imagine coming out of that is that we're continually living the same thing over and over again in a loop. That's real. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, we've we've touched on this before. Um, the only way that I differ in my understanding from yours is that language of over and over again in a loop, because that implies a passage of time, a, a circular passage of time, in fact. Uh, whereas my understanding of eternity is, by definition, it is that which is not experienced over the passage of time it is timeless it is what happens in that instant and not over the course of several instances hmm. yeah i'm it's hard to tell whether it's just like a semantic thing or not because because what do well you be you're kind of implying that there's something outside of time that is unchanging. Like there's this fixed background on it, right? That, um, that time is changing against or something. Um, that, that kind of, that kind of does imply that the loop thing mm. that I was talking about, which I agree isn't quite accurate. I'll say that the general gist of your idea is I think spot on and speaks to something true. Uh, it's just a matter of the language that I I, mm -hmm. I differ on. Do you do you find that idea distressing at all, or like how do you? No, actually, I find the idea of uh, an eternal existence in a present moment in our past existing eternally. I find that so calming and relaxing yeah yeah I, I do too although i mean it because it's it does kind of i mean if you start thinking along the lines of like suffering and stuff it is kind of uh if you think about all the all the lives mm. that are just short and brutal and just on like a a loop i mean that's kind of distressing um yeah it's literally yeah. hell um Hell exists right yeah. here and now, and all, all, even, even all of the aspects of our own existences where we experience suffering in whatever form that occurs, that suffering experienced is is eternal. It it's there all right. the time. Well, all the <laughs> language. <laughs> but for me, that's okay because it's at the same time implies that there is always existence, which implies that there always will be existence. Yeah. So all of the scrambling and striving and growing and trying to make it work, 
you don't have to hang mm-hmm. on to it. Because it's still going to be there after yeah. you stop trying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the part of it that makes me feel like the most warm and fuzzy inside is like, you know, you're always with your family. You're always like a kid with your family, you know. Like, <laughs> what if your family sucks? <laughs> still true. <laughs> <laughs> but, mo- but it doesn't have to be that kind of thing. But just, you know, past memories that you're sad mm. that it's not like that way anymore, you know. Oh, wow. Like, you're always innocent as a child. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, all the, you know, like your middle school friends you haven't seen in like years and years and years, you're all still like hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> that one really awkward thing that happened to you in middle school where it felt like eternity in that moment. It is eternity. It's, it's, it's still happening. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing is, is you have to let be careful to not let that make it easier, easier for you to torture yourself with past <laughs> events that you wish happened a different way. <laughs> but it's, it's like, I, I just have to see it as kind of comical because literally if you think about the, the like uh-huh. most little mistakes you're making to the biggest ones like you're making the exact same one every time <laughs> like <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah something something about this the scale of it something about having that perspective lends it a comical air because it it, it puts the smallness into mm-hmm. perspective and and i think that extends to suffering too how's that that when when you when you have that that perspective uh, as if looking back on it from an outside experience even knowing that it's happening eternally it's somehow smaller because you know it's only one small instance amid a, a sea of instances and they're not all suffering yeah yeah and i think i mean we'll talk about this I think on a later episode, but yeah, how you do the math of, of suffering versus uh, pleasurable experiences is really, really complicated. And I think you have to, at some point, you have to give some very, very large value to just existing at all because that's kind of the precondition, precondition for anything else to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. And this will this will get into a topic we talk about on a later episode where we get into the anti-natalist uh, views and tear them a new one. Uh, <laughs> 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 hmm. Because at a certain point, the existence of suffering is—it doesn't matter if the existence is what's important. You said that the existence is, is important, not the suffering? Exactly, yeah. And even that existence, even if it comes at the price of of having that suffering, it's still worth it. Yeah, I mean, to a point. Just, yeah, that, that, I, I think that's the discussion yeah. for the other week right yeah. there. <laughs> I have a... Uh, quote i'd like to bring up 
Um, so are you familiar with Lapaz's demon? Yes, although remind me. Sure. So this is the idea of Lapaz's demon by Marquis Pierre Simon de Lapaz. We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect which at any given moment knew all of the forces that animate nature and the mutual positions of beings that compose it. If this intellect were vast enough to submit the data to analysis, could condense into a single formula the movement of the greatest bodies of the universe and that of the lightest atom. For such an intellect, nothing could be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. Yeah. Wait, what year was that written? 1814. It's interesting. <laughs> so that kind of implies that everything is completely deterministic, right? That you could actually, if you knew, if you could know everything about every particle, including its speed and, and position, then you could predict everything. Um, but we know from the uncertainty principle that you can't actually do that perfectly, right? Sure, but so that's something that's so remarkable about this language, though, is the, the way that this ends, the, it, it actually kind of sidesteps or precludes that idea because it, it doesn't make any claims about predicting the future. Mm -hmm. Um, it, well, it, it does, but then it says that that future prediction, when, once you know it, once you can see it as true, th that is by definition seeing it as present. And so anything that you know for certain is, is that is what it is. That's, that's the present. That's what the present is. I think that's poetic, but I don't think it's true. Why? <laughs> because, I mean, you could know that you're going to get a birthday cake in a week. Does that make the birthday cake real? No, you couldn't. <laughs> you, you can't know that. You may predict it, and you may have good chances of getting that prediction right, but you can never know it with absolute certainty. Right. So, so then you can't ever bring anything into the, into the present like that actually like you, you can't mean? know enough about something in the future ever to bring it into the present so so the, what this what this says to me though is it's not a single uh passage through time there's two cross sections of space time here happening where the time dimension is different from one to the other the one is internal within the the universe posited um but after that point all of that internal past present and future becomes a present within the context of some other greater universe huh how, so how how exactly does that happen Be, well because can you be sure of anything that is not in the present? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, if you have pictures of, you know, past it. <laughs> no, no, that that's, that's, again, probability. Like, you have these historical objects that infer certain things, but you're just interpreting imperfect data. At a certain point, there's going to be too much noise, or you're just going to get the wrong idea, or maybe there's things that were happening outside the picture that you didn't know about that relate to the scene. Yeah, and it's always, uh, there's always the possibility that all of it was created just five seconds ago and with all your memories already there mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do, you, how do you know it really is or was? Yeah. That's the thing, is, is, is the question. Mm-hmm. I still think it's possible that the indeterminate nature of quantum mechanics could mean that something way more mysterious is going on where nothing is actually like linear or determinate and like we're in some kind of random generation machine that's uh (laughs) like there's no there's no there's no one continuous stream of events there's just like something else happening i don't does that make any sense like the yeah like somehow um there's not like one linear narrative. It's it's not like it's mm. not like spreading splitting branches so so much as like all the frames are just kind of in a jumble, and and that it sort of automatically sorts itself so that the things that are most similar are adjacent, and yeah. that creates the illusion of continuity. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um yeah i think that's got to be a a really valid way to look at it yeah i i that could still be compatible with either eternalism or presentism but it's hard to know how Mm -hmm. (laughs) it makes me think about uh rick and morty and rick's portal gun where he goes to the alternate universes and there's well so so they have all these different universes and they're different in different ways and like there's of course the episode where they go to the citadel of ricks and there's like millions of different ricks and mortys all living together and they're all slightly different and there's like a lot of them that are pretty darn similar you know they just have like different haircuts maybe or maybe they don't um and then there's the the outliers you know you've got like 20 normal mortys and then you've got the one lizard morty who's just like mm-hmm. a lizard person and then there's like the one where he's like a hammer <laughs> walking around <laughs> and there's like some sort of continuity going right like there's a lot of similarity between most of these parallel universes and then there's certain arbitrary ways in which they're similar and weird, unexpected ways in which they differ. And like mm-hmm. what, what makes those part of the same continuum of, of universes as the one that uh, the original Rick is from. So I mean, I think it's, I think it kind of comes from the idea that if the universe is actually infinite, that every possible combination of atoms will happen an infinite number of times. Mm-hmm. 
right? So that you get every, literally every minute variation repeated an infinite number of times down to, you know, the color of someone's shirt or even like the number of threads in their shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Being a little different. Um, which is mind boggling and seems kind of counterintuitive, but just because our, our brains didn't evolve to think that way doesn't mean it's true. And what's that organizing principle that says this is more similar than another? Uh, I mean, if you break it down to just like molecular composition, <laughs> I don't know. So, so this idea that you just posited about how things just randomly happen and that there's there's no order to it and then eventually things that are similar enough happen and so that creates the sense of continuity. Isn't that the same idea as the sum over paths idea? Which posits that a subatomic particle when traveling from one point to another takes the most direct course, but th the way it finds the most direct course is that it takes literally every possible course to get there, and that mm -hmm. the averaging of all of those courses is the most direct course. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, does that have to do with virtual particles, or is that a different... I don't know, but so what I'm seeing, the con the, the connection here I'm seeing is that uh, the first point that the particle is at, that's mm -hmm. like the one reality. That's the one keyframe of your existence where things make sense and it's organized. Mm -hmm. And then you have every possible random thing that happens until you have an occurrence that is so similar in every regard except the only difference is that that particle has moved one unit or whatever mm -hmm. to the side I think I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. <laughs> me too I, um, I feel slightly yeah. dizzy actually <laughs> <laughs> I actually feel really dizzy and I think it's entirely due to that whoa <laughs> So, so yeah, say, just say it, say it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get some water. <laughs> okay. was actually an incredibly unusual biological experience i just had <laughs> yeah <laughs> where that that idea literally made my head spin yeah <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, so, sometimes when I have a good idea, I feel like my heart like almost skips a beat or something. It's weird. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so then we were talking about how you can have an experience of a, a, pre a present experience of just this is your life. This is the moment right now. And mm -hmm. then you have a random occurrence of experiences that completely do not relate or, or may not relate in any way to that experience. Just random things happening for forever until you have just by chance something that is incredibly similar to the initial experience that you started with except for that it's changed one increment in that dimension that we're calling time yeah now isn't that the same as the sum over paths theorem where you have a single particle that exists in a certain point and then for that particle to travel from one point to the next point over it takes every possible path to get there that particle simultaneously travels in every possible rambling path that will eventually lead to its destination and if you average all of those paths the the result is that straight line between the two mm -hmm. yeah okay so so you're saying that we're kind of we live like a moment in one life and then a bunch of randomness happens that's shifting to other experiences and other like perspectives and then suddenly we're randomly at the next time step in that timeline and so it feels like we're just progressing that way but it's actually like everything simultaneously just like bouncing around and you're and the only thing that's being perceived is the the connection from when uh there's uh a pair of similar uh mm -hmm. states of the universe yeah yeah and and perhaps uh also tied to that is that the the ones that there is a perception of are the ones in which there is a consciousness to have a perception so, so that all mm -hmm. those noisy paths that it takes from uh, random generated occurrences that happen between those two points, that they're not a consciousness in the fullest sense of the word. Like th th those existences do not support a consciousness. Sorry, which existences? the uh random occurrences that happen between each increment of our experience i mean i don't know i mean i, I don't know about that i mean it, i it kind of makes me think of like a panpsychist thing where like everything is actually the same consciousness mm. it's just splitting back and forth between different manifestations oh wow like, like it's yeah it's, it's it's all the same it's like a this really jagged like timeline that's you know it's, it's skipping between you know mm. a billions of different perspectives at a time but it's uh 
it's all like a single thread. So you're saying it's like a a a, a radio signal, for example, where you, where you're tuned into one particular frequency, but you have all of the noise of all of the frequencies happening at the same time, and the only reason that that one pr- experience is the one that you're having is because that's the one you're tuned to. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an idea that I uh, stole shamelessly from Michio Kaku. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was going to be Alan Watts. No. I guess one thing, one thing we haven't really talked about is... I mean, one of the main things that makes time seem really important and the passage of time seem important is the second law of thermodynamics, right? Which is the idea that entropy will always increase mm-hmm. within a closed system. Um, and as far as we can tell in this universe with the laws of physics that we have, it only goes that one direction and you can't put the egg back in the shell and have it all perfectly uh, come back together again. Um, and there, yeah, there's some processes that it can only go one way, and that that seems to be one of the the most concrete things that creates the sense of time, um, or it creates the sense of the passage of time hmm. in the universe. That there's a progression towards a certain state. Yeah. Hmm. And we're, I mean, humans are part of that. I actually, I read somewhere a while ago that that human life or life in general is actually like really, really efficient at increasing entropy, right? I mean, we we just you know we consume uh, chemical energy and give off heat. Yeah, <laughs> it's like all we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, we're we're pretty inseparable from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think to exist in uh any sense of of having agency Mm -hmm. you have to counteract that uh that framework on on which you're you're living if the landscape that you're living on is that of death right the uh inevitable decay then in order to be a living thing you have to contradict that energy yeah yeah you have to you have to hold off against entropy increasing for for the entirety of your life basically absolutely (laughs) yeah the longer you go the harder the struggle is right yeah (laughs) 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 yeah uh, the trick is to breathe. <laughs> I mean that that is one of the other things that comes to mind um, when you think about life and and the nature of suffering and that kind of thing. Because literally, it is you know you have to keep expending effort as much as you can to avoid the universe. Just kind of you know dismembering you and mm-hmm. and making you continuous with it <laughs> yeah <laughs> doesn't i mean that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing though and that doesn't necessarily invoke 
pain or suffering, I guess. It invokes struggle, though. Yeah. Is pain a necessary part of struggle? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Because struggle, struggle is just you have a goal and it's really hard to achieve. Yeah, there's contradictory and... forces, right? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe if, if you approach that achieving that goal against the contradictory force in the most efficient way, then maybe that's painless. Yeah, I mean, I would say pain has to have something to do with the nervous system. Hmm. Or we could even take it to the ideological metaphor uh, where pain is the awareness of things that are not right, that could be fixed or, or, or things to avoid. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which one is more real. Oh, this is this is something I was I was going to maybe talk about. Have you heard of uh, quantum immortality? No. Okay, so this is, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like a fringe thing that's not super widely accepted, but it's the idea that it's impossible to die because your consciousness will always follow the the split in the multiverse where you keep existing. Mm. Yes, I've thought about this. Yeah. I can't disprove it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the the kind of the answer to it comes from the the second law of thermodynamics because at a certain point that I mean the universe is going to go through heat death and all timelines will end in in that um if not sooner right I mean there are there are certain situations where no matter what happens quantum mechanically you're screwed because you know your your star went supernova or you know mm -hmm. something but um seems like it would at least apply to some things De definitely to some things probably to most things but i i don't know if it's to all things uh michio kaku in his book uh hyperspace talks about how it's conceivably possible that a race could transcend the boundaries of our universe and populate into another universe or at least induce some sort of effect from our universe outward and mm -hmm. in so doing like cer certainly we couldn't send all of us through right M most of us would die maybe we couldn't send anyone through but we could send a seed of some sort to spawn to, to shape the world that some other new forming world in the way that seems desirable to us for some reason mm -hmm. and in so doing like you could have an infinite chain of those where there is a one line maybe that goes throughout existence eternally over time forever without dying. Wow. <laughs> and I think the nature of that experience is defined by the fact that it, is forced to change continuously. It must change and adapt to, to survive, and if it doesn't, then it will die. Hmm. 
Sorry, how is how is this connected to the us, uh, uh, influencing other universes and that that whole thing? Okay, so if you have a, a super advanced race that figures out how to send out some influence from its own universe into another, in order to pass that barrier, that is, uh, it requires change. It requires a loss of what it was in order to progress mm -hmm. onto what it will be. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so so even if you have this chain of one community of entities transcending one universe into another one, uh, or or imparting some influence from one to the other, and even if you have an infinite chain of those, uh, the nature of that is that of a changing entity. That's interesting. By entity, are you implying that it's some sort of continued consciousness, or yeah, yeah? So I, I guess I'm playing pretty fast and loose with uh, entity and entities. Um, well, okay, so so let's say for example, you have uh, a community of meat blobs like ourselves who manage to send uh, an Adam and an Eve through a wormhole or something. Uh, mm -hmm. into another universe and they repopulate mm -hmm. this new universe and mm -hmm. uh, as that new universe is approaching heat death they escape out to another universe uh, not the same two individuals it would have to be an entirely different entity by that point because the mm -hmm. uh, the beings have evolved over all that time within this new context of this, this new universe so they're going to adapt to their current environment. They're going to have different ideals and the influence that they impart upon the next universe is going to be different than the one before it. He does postulate some, some possible ways that that could actually happen. I do not pretend to understand them. Okay, yeah, so there, there's a cold spot in the cosmic microwave background that mm. can't really be explained by stuff like density of stars. Oh, okay. So some people say it's an optical illusion produced by a lack of intervening galaxies. I think it's something mm. like it would have transferred some energy to the other universe. And so that's why it would be colder. Something like that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and it makes me think about, if you have ever blown a bunch of bubbles and you see the bubbles, not not in the air, but like if you, you have something that's uh, creating a pile of bubbles, you know, and they're all touching each other and pushing against each other and they're all deforming each other by, mm -hmm. by proximity. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, they, I don't, I don't know what the mm. evidence would be for like that stuff happening all the time, but, totally possible well isn't isn't that the nature of if you were to say that your existence within a universe is like the lifespan mm -hmm. of the bubble right and the passage of time is the whole time that that bubble exists it, it's kind of like the 
that there's un forces that we we can't explain, like the uh, force that causes uh, rapid caused rapid inflation in the early stages of the uh, expansion of our universe. Um, perhaps that that force could be the fluctuations of other universes pressing against our own yeah yeah i mean it could it could explain a lot of things potentially about yeah how the universe started and and why it had its, the initial properties um it did actually this uh connects to someone who has a different view than eternalism um lee smolin who's uh another contemporary theoretical physicist um but he has this idea that kind of invokes natural selection. And uh, hmm. his theory is that there's something that's producing universes with essentially random uh, constants, physical constants, and different laws of physics. And then those hmm. propagate based on, um, I think he actually said, if I'm remembering this right, it's, it has something to do with black holes, the generation of black holes, and that, it, it it's actually i think part of the theory is that that black holes create new universes when they form mm. but it, yeah it's it it gets to the it gets to the anthropological principle right which is you can ask the question why are the laws of physics the way they are and you can answer that with because we're here observing them and there would be other laws of physics that wouldn't allow for beings to observe that universe therefore we're not we're not in that universe we're in this one um and it would make that would make sense if what was mm. happening was that essentially every possible universe with every possible set of physics was getting generated and we're showing up in the small percentage that can support life mm. yeah it's interesting mm. like yeah it's like incredible. how many of these different ideas like could be true or not and like which ones are true like of the set of like the metaphysical way reality works like there, there are so many different. Hmm. And then, what is what does it mean to be true? Like, you can have ideas that seem to contradict each other, but each reveal some aspect of the truth. And when you transcend into a higher dimensionality of understanding that concept, you finally find out how those ideas integrate, while on the lower level seeming to contradict. Yeah. That's well put <laughs> yeah <laughs> gee thanks yeah we, we can never have perfect knowledge of the universe as far as we know i mean we'll, we'll see what happens if we get strong ai mm. at some point if that results in anything <laughs> like like perfect knowledge My sense on the question of AI is that it's going to approach perfect knowledge in ways that we can't even comprehend, but I feel like there's some sort of constant that's got to say that it'll never fully reach it. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I mean, if there's, if there's some fundamental limit to, like, yeah. what you can compute within the given within the universe right because i mean there are some problems that you know even if you turned every available you know 
cyberpunk length of universe into like circuitry you still couldn't compute the whole thing <laughs> um so it depends so this is uh, an entry from my journal from college if the universe is shaped like a hypersphere looping back on itself then that is a finite reality imagine traveling instantaneously in one direction eventually you'll wind up back where you started this is a world that can be known in its entirety so that it cannot be an expression of everything as its deterministic state squelches out the possibility of free will that's some strange language i put there but we'll talk on that if however the universe stretches out continuously in all directions always producing new content then there is no point at which it can be said to be looped no distance at which the hypersphere's diameter can be set there will just be continuously new landscapes stretching out forever as this universe extends infinitely in all directions it follows that a traveler will eventually reach parallel worlds even an observable universe that is identical to the one they began in it will even at times repeat itself at a number of repetitions approaching infinity but eventually it will always move on expansing new and original territory so then an infinite loop of expression is a finite quantity and a finite loop is an expression of infinity pretty deep bro <laughs> <laughs> that's what she said <laughs> the whole thing including the bro <laughs> why so what what's the significance of the hypersphere as far as explaining things so um the hypersphere is a way to describe a universe that is looped because uh say for example you exit one side of the screen like in pac-man you come in on the other side right that's that's what the hypersphere oh, okay. is yeah. you know if, if you go around a ball in one direction eventually right. you'll get back to where you started right so has, has your thinking changed that much since you wrote that or sounds like it's kind of different from a little different no nope. what we were talking about before but so i i actually feel that i i don't disagree with anything in this although i've been thinking along different lines lately um the the language i use where i talk about free will almost as if it's a constant mm -hmm. right that it's like an, a necessity that uh proves that that's mm -hmm. real that i mean i i still feel like that's probably true um well i i think that's an, a whole entire uh, yeah. another discussion yeah. that we can have yeah, i think it's i think it's a beautiful idea how the the infinite and the finite kind of end up being the same thing if they're you know yeah you think about it in the right way just looking across the other side of the divide i get really crazy with going on on this <laughs> There's another entry a little bit later. 
I'll, I'll share it now, although I don't know if it'll make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> so it's titled, Why a Cosmic Speed Limit, the Speed of Light, is an elegant way to ensure the fundamental freshness or free will of a universe and allows for the universe to be shaped as a hypersphere of infinite radius, a shape which greatly increases the efficiency of information storage and which at radii less than the observable universe has the effect of shaping the universe iteratively with each successive iteration derived from a previous moment in a point's history. In a hyperspheric universe, any object moving at a finite speed in a straight line will eventually arrive at the same place it started, but at a future moment in time. In effect, this path is an extra-dimensional spiral where the object circles back on itself only offset in one dimension. If the observable universe is greater in diameter than the diameter of the hypersphere, then it is possible to see multiple instances of the same point in space, but in different places in time, simultaneously. This can be seen as a recursive pattern where each successive event is derived from the last. If the speed of movement is constant, then the iterations will be regularly spaced. The greater the field of vision is in relation to the diameter of the hypersphere, the more iterations will be visible. Indeed, the more universes will appear iterative. So, by imposing a speed limit, each new moment in the straight path of an object is a unique, unexplored world state. In order to maintain free will, the field of vision must be less than twice the diameter of the hypersphere. I don't know how I worked that out. <laughs> Isn't the diameter of the hypersphere infinite, though? I think that's what you said. Is it? I think the point of the diameter is that it's a finite number. Okay, I got something mixed up. So you you have two uh you have two spheres, right? You've got well the hypersphere of the universe. And then you've got the sphere of your observable mm -hmm. universe. And you could imagine a world that exists within a hypersphere where the diameter of the hypersphere is less than that of your observable universe. Mm -hmm. So you can actually look back uh, and within one field of vision, you can see the same point reflected in multiple places but it's not a reflection it's it's that's that's yeah it no, yeah i see i see what you're meaning yeah i mean if if the universe is infinite you could you could see your own past somewhere happening over there is that kind of what you're saying although uh exactly yeah. the speed of light 
maybe this is what you're saying. I'm just not seeing it. The, the speed of light would would prohibit you from seeing that ever because it's so far away. Like you couldn't actually observe it at the same time. Mm-hmm. It, it, th- that's yeah. true of our universe. But if you were to examine, uh, imagine this universe where uh, it, it's less than the, mm-hmm. than the speed of light. Yeah, yeah, because if there's a speed of light, then you can't have instantaneous right. travel. Or information traveling instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. There was a footnote after I talk about a shape which greatly increases the efficiency of information storage and which at radii less than the observable universe, asterisk, has the effect of shaping the universe iteratively. Uh, asterisk goes to the Planck length is such a radius where r is much smaller than the observable universe. The iterations displayed in these miniature hyperspheres is the presence of strings or membranes or resonant bodies, however you want to talk about superstring theory, the variation appearing as their presence and absence. Hmm. <laughs> I don't. I'd have to think about that one. I, I forget what I meant. <laughs> oh, there's some interesting, interesting stuff in there for sure. So you you think string theory is correct, or part of it is correct? Yeah. Um. And then here he, here's an entirely. Uh. I, I'm sure that anyone who knows anything about it will laugh at me when when I say this. Uh, <laughs> so Michio Kaku in his book talks about how first there's string theory where uh, they postulate these little tiny strings resonating and that each resonance represents a subatomic particle uh, and there's different ways they can interact but then they were extending the uh, the theory and branching it out into M theory which is basically string theory uh, mark two, where the prominent difference is that instead of strings, they're actually membranes, like right. the surface of a drum that can resonate. Um, and then I was thinking, well, isn't the obvious obvious next step, since, since we're just stepping up in numbers of dimensions, is resonant bodies, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could ask what it means for something that small to be three-dimensional. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's one issue I've, I've had with string theory is that it postulates a size for these strings. I don't know if that makes any sense or if it's necessary that maybe these strings don't exist in the same continuum of space and so that the idea of size doesn't really make sense yeah that's interesting yeah i mean it's i feel like <laughs> when you're talking about stuff that that's this and and whenever we're taught this in science class it's always like this is how atoms work actually we were lying to you this is how they actually work oh actually we're still lying to you this is how they actually work <laughs> <laughs> at the yeah. bottom of the chain is yeah we have no fucking idea <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I really know enough about string theory to comment on it. But I think the main criticism of it has always been that it doesn't really lead to claims that you can refute or like test 
But I think that might be changing. Mm. It, it's, it's like how Sean Curl in the video you sent me talks about how uh, philosophy and science have this sort of competitive, uneasy truce where they can work together sometimes and that maybe this is a field where there's actually something valuable to be gained by looking from the philosophical perspective. Totally, yeah. And actually, I, mean, I think most fields actually do require some sort of philosophy if if you're going to examine them as closely as possible. I mean, even, even science, like we don't, you know, how do we know that the scientific method shows us anything uh, that's actually true? <laughs> um, yeah. It's interesting because for for a long time, physicists didn't really talk about the like the metaphysical implications of quantum mechanics. Mm. Um, but nowadays, people are I think taking it more seriously, and it's it's exciting that people are actually like talking about <laughs> about philosophical concepts like this and that they're relevant to like our understanding of physics and and the way the universe mm. works. Yeah. The melding of the halves and the joining of the bodies. <laughs> of knowledge, that is.